May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Tomorrow, November the 1st, is All Saints Day. And this evening is the Eve of All Saints, or the Eve of All Hallows, and so Hallow Eve. I want to talk to you about what it means to celebrate all the saints. What does it mean in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the communion of saints? We also say at the beginning of the Eucharist liturgy, therefore we praise you joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to the glory of your name, holy, holy, holy. We join our voices with all the company of heaven. So first, what is All Saints Day? Second, why should we remember the dead? And third, how should we think of them now in their new state? The communion of saints is the spiritual union of the members of the Christian church, living and dead. More about the word communion in a moment. But the word saints can mislead us. It can make us think of those who have gone through the elaborate procedures of canonization, like St. Francis or St. Bonaventure. But the New Testament uses the term saint for all those who are members of the church who belong to Christ's body. Thus Paul writes in his letter to the saints in Ephesus. So remembering the saints does not just mean thinking of the world historical figures. We can also remember Andrea Nagy Smith and Patty Rosenberger and Dwight Blakesley and Phil Coy, and Steve Weston, and Terry Hare, and Phyllis Anstel. Remembering the dead has been part of every culture we know about, and it is an important part of a good human life. For example, in Mexican culture, there is a day of the dead and people make what they call an ofrenda, a special place of remembrance, lighting a candle with a photo or some personal object associated with the deceased and special foods. The celebration of the dead is good, but like most good things, it can be abused. 
Halloween has become other than this. It has become like Christmas, big business, about $8 billion in 2020. And it has become spooky. Now, I do not think we should overreact to this as Christians, just as we should not overreact to what has happened to Christmas. It is true that Halloween celebrations are full of witches and vampires. But by overreacting, I'm thinking about Pat Robertson saying, I quote, Halloween is a day when millions of children celebrate Satan. I think most of Halloween hijinks is just good fun and we should not get all huffy about it. But having said that, it is also true that there are Satanists and there is Wicca and they treat Halloween not as hijinks, but as deadly serious. Thus Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan, said, I quote, I am glad that Christian parents let their children worship the devil at least one night out of the year. Welcome to Halloween. And his view is that when you adopt pagan practices, putting on a devil mask, for example, you subconsciously dedicate yourself to the devil and you allow Satan to own you. Halloween is a highly important festival of the occult. And I think evil is real and has real power. Some people get fascinated with it and sucked into it. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, one of Satan's most powerful tools is our sense that the occult is all just make-believe. So we have to discern when there is something to be troubled about and when it's all just fun and games. This is especially difficult for parents. I remember vividly when our children were younger. The issue was the game magic and especially the black cards, which are full of occult symbolism. We discerned that our children were getting fascinated in an unhealthy way. And we may have been completely wrong, but we may also have been right. We felt we had to examine every video game, every comic book before our children absorbed them because our children were susceptible and there is evil as well as good in the popular culture. The new technology now makes this even harder. I'm afraid this is a great burden for parents. What Terry did when we lived in Grand Rapids, together with some friends at church, was to organize a saints party in which people and especially kids could dress up and get treats but they were dressing up as saints and they were not getting just sugar. Saints can be just 
as fun as witches and vampires. There are lots of wonderfully colorful saints. The Pitta has put a book of saints on the table at the back of church last Sunday, and it's in my car. I forgot to, I'll bring it immediately after the service. Jerome and the lion, Bridget and the sword, Martin dividing his cloak. And if you want gory, there's Lucy with her eyeballs or Sebastian with the arrows. But the point of the party was to emphasize the good and to be motivated by it, not primarily to be motivated by fear of the bad and the demonic, which some evangelical responses to Halloween have been. But let me get on to the second point. Why should we remember the dead? At least three reasons. The first thing is that they worship with us. And we need to acknowledge their presence. The Te Deum is one of the ancient canticles set for morning prayer. Te Deum Laudamus is Latin for, we praise you, Lord. The song says that we praise God together with the glorious company of the apostles, the noble fellowship of the prophets, the white-robed army of martyrs. Church interiors, for example, at Ravenna, used to represent this with frescoes or mosaics on the walls of the nave. Hebrews to a great cloud of witnesses. The communion of the saints is not just the set of the members of the church, living and dead, but their fellowship, which is itself a kind of common life. The Greek is koinonia. Calvin says, whatever benefits God bestows upon the believers should mutually communicate one to another. The saints in heaven are praying for us and we should pray for them. You may wonder, what does it mean to pray for the dead? But this is part of our liturgical practice. In the prayers of the people, the leader prays, we will pray today, give to the departed eternal rest. And we pray in response, let light perpetual shine upon them. We interred Terry a week ago up in Salisbury, the place she most loved in the world. And before we put her ashes in the earth, I prayed, dear God, we commit our beloved Terry into your hands. And we ask you to keep her close to you until we can meet again in Jesus name. We can pray for the dead. 
And we should also think of Andrea and Patty and Dwight and Phil and Steve and Terry and Phyllis as praying with us, praising God together with us as we worship. That's the first reason for remembering. The second is that we need to face death and remember the dead as with us and also not with us. I say this because in our culture, we sometimes refuse to face death. In the great cemetery outside Los Angeles called Forest Lawn, which I visited a few years ago, there are huge words in marble letters, 10 feet high at the top of the driveway. There is no death. And you can pay as a special feature of being buried there for a recording of your loved one's voice to be installed in the gravestone so that you can press a button and hear her speak to you. I think this is unhealthy. At Terry's interment, we had Rory there, who is eight years old, our grandson. He came forward with all the other members of the family to put the earth back on top of the ashes, and then to put flowers on the grass that we had restored on top of the earth. He knew that her death was real. Though what an eight-year-old mind makes of this, I'm not sure. The third reason is that we cannot actually forget those saints we have loved, but we need to see them now as manifesting the glory of God. When Terry died, I had been terrified that I would forget, forget what she looked like and the sound of her voice. But I have found that when I stop desperately squeezing my memory, she is there and she comes all the time into my mind, helping me cope with my life without her. But she is now in glory and she is no longer just what she was. This takes us to the gospel for today and the story of Lazarus. Jesus meets first Martha, his sister, and tells her your brother will rise again. And then Martha goes to fetch Mary and Mary says like Martha, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus goes with the two sisters to the tomb. And he weeps. And then he says, take away the stone. And Martha, being practical, <laughs> objects there will be a stink because he's been there four days. But Jesus says, and here's the point I want to make. Did I not tell you 
that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. And he calls in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Seeing Lazarus resurrected is seeing a manifestation of the glory of God. I cannot see Terry resurrected. But when I pray for her, I am praying not for her as I remember her, but as she is now in glory. I must not try to keep her in my mind as fixed by my attachment to the time we spent together. But note that even though Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to manifest the glory of God, Jesus still weeps. And this is a model for us. We can know that our loved ones are in glory and we can still weep. How should we think of the saints now in their present state? Some Christians have believed and some still believe in purgatory. C.S. Lewis, for example, believed in it. Together with this belief have gone and still go certain practices. Guillermo is from Guatemala and he works on my house. He was very fond of Terry. He told me that he had been praying for her and that he had accrued a certain number of points for her, which would help her get out of purgatory. I thanked him. But actually, I don't believe in purgatory. I think the belief has a good motivation. We feel that we are not ready for heaven when we die, and we need some more training. When I taught at Lehigh, the chairman of the department who had lost his Christian faith, nonetheless had engraved on the top of his notepaper, God isn't finished with me yet. But this motivation is based on a certain assumption, which I think is false. This is the assumption that heaven is a perfect state that is already complete. That's why we think we're not ready for it. But suppose heaven is not like that at all, but is a process, a movement. Then the training, the growing can take place there. I do not want to get too technical here, but there is a background in Greek philosophy to the mistake being made here. Aristotle thought that our best activity was contemplation. And he thought that contemplation was already complete. It does not aim at anything, but it is like seeing rather than say, walking to Larissa. When you see something, it's already true that you have seen it. It's complete. 
Whereas if you're walking to Larissa, it's not already true that you have walked there. But what is heaven like? Is it a state of being already complete? Some theologians have thought that heaven was best seen as a beatific vision of God with love for God following inevitably from the seeing. But other theologians, and this is why I mentioned St. Bonaventure, have thought that even in heaven, we can love what we have not yet understood. The love transcends the understanding. For Aristotle, understanding is like seeing because it becomes identical with the form of its object. If we think of the state of the saints as one primarily of seeing, then we will be tempted to think we're not ready for it yet. But if the state of the saints is primarily one of loving, then we can think of them as still in process, still moving towards greater and greater love as well as greater and greater understanding. I think that when we pray for the dead, this is what we can pray for them, for this continued journey. What is the relation between the saints in heaven and the final judgment? In the passage today from Revelation, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This happens in John's vision after the judgment from the great white throne in chapter 20, when the books are opened and each person is judged according to what he or she has thought or said or done. I think we have to picture here two judgments, what are called in the tradition, the particular judgment and the general judgment. The particular judgment is the judgment of the particular individual. And the general judgment is the judgment of the whole human race. The reason we need two judgments here is that we do not want to say that the saints have to wait for the final judgment before being with God. I think Terry is already there with Jesus. On the other hand, if the saints are already with God, why do we not already see the new heavens and the new earth where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain? These terms, particular judgment and general judgment, are not in scripture. They're an attempt to make sense of what is in scripture. One other qualification is that for God, if I'm right about eternity, these two judgments are simultaneous. 
Eternity is the whole perfect and simultaneous possession of everlasting life, which is a unique possession of God. Put more simply, God sees everything at once. So for us, these are distinct judgments in sequence, but not for God. This is why scripture sometimes puts them together, as in Matthew 25. My thought is that the final judgment is something collective. When we all see the effects of what we have thought and said and done, and we are held accountable for it all. I think it will be devastating. T.S. Eliot talks about old age this way, I quote, the reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. We have learned from the various Truth and Reconciliation Commissions of recent history, the importance of all this being public and in the open presence of all. So perhaps, and this is mere speculation, God has prepared this final accounting for our sake. But it's also important that this final judgment is a time not only of justice, but of mercy. When the secrets of our hearts have been revealed and we have seen the effects on others of what we have thought and said and done, then we can be forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. But the forgiveness is not just an overlooking of what we have done and been or a verdict that it does not matter. The accounting comes first. I was taught this doctrine the following way, though this is just a picture. The books are opened and in them are all the things we have thought and said and done and the just penalties attached in a separate column. When God forgives, it is not that God forgets. The lines in the books are not deleted because God is omniscient and cannot simply fail to know what has happened. But what God deletes are the items in the penalty column. Our failures are no longer, so to speak, held against us because Jesus has paid the price. So let me return finally to the communion of saints. Our first lesson from the wisdom of Solomon says the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God. Their going from us seemed to be their destruction, but they are at peace. It's a strange thing that after we interred Terry last week, my two sons and I 
and Bridget, my sister, and Bill, Terry's brother. We all of us separately had the same experience. We all felt that she was at peace. And we all felt a sense of lightness, of relief. I don't know why this is so, why putting your loved one in the ground should have this effect. I merely report it. The communion of saints is at peace. Not if I'm right, at rest in the sense of the absence of motion or change, but in the sense that they are not consumed as we are here by our failure to be what God intends for us to be. And when we worship with them, we are invited into that peace, the peace of God which passes all understanding. If we can think of them now as they are now, it's like when you're some, with someone at peace here on earth, it can settle you and calm you and bring you back to God. May it be so for us as we pray with all the saints in heaven. Amen. Thank you.